How do you do? It's another episode of Full Metal Analysts. Welcome to our show where three writers analyze each and every episode of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I'm Michelle. I'm Arthur. And I'm Mike. We like to bring in guests on the show that have different and unique perspectives on the show we're watching. We've had UFC fighters and voice <laughs> actors. And now we have Alex Statman, who is the Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hey, Arthur. It's great to be here. Good to have you here. Thanks for coming to the show. So way back when I was a junior uh, at Stanford, and Alex was a doctoral candidate teaching a class on magic and occult science in the early modern world. We talked about real-life alchemists in their real historical context. So I thought it'd be cool to bring him onto the show and ask him a few questions and get the sort of real history behind the fiction of the show that we're getting. So first of all, Alex, we do like to start with what is your relationship to Full Metal Alchemist? I think you said you'd watched some before. When I was in my freshman year of college in 2005, a friend of mine who lived on the floor above me and I used to watch Full Metal Alchemist maybe once every couple weeks, only really late at night. Like, really late at night. <laughs> yeah, the Adult Swim era. I exactly. I don't know if I've ever seen an episode sober. Probably not. <laughs> Honestly? That's fair. Yeah, oh, it, but it, it was awesome. I had never seen any anime before. I remember, like, you know, I grew up in the era that transitioned between, like, Dragon Ball Z and Pokemon. I was, like, a little too young for Dragon Ball Z, maybe, and, like, a little too old for Pokemon or, or something like that. And... I was pretty uninterested in anime, but, um, but this guy who lived on floor 13 of Carmen Hall was like, no, man, you got to watch Full Metal Alchemist with me. And then the other, the other one that we watched was Samurai Shampoo. Those are the only two animes that I've ever seen at all. I probably saw 10 to 15 episodes, I would guess, of the beat. We started from the beginning, so they were like early on episodes. Mm -hmm. I remember, I don't know, they were like people wandering around. Uh, there was like a, like a, a golem, I think. Yeah. Yes. I think you're thinking of Alphonse Eric. Oh, right. Is, was he a giant <laughs> armor guy? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. <laughs> he's a soul bound to an armor. Sounds Which, like a golem, it's a golem to me. That's golem-esque. Yeah. Oh, my God. Does that mean he's Jewish like me? <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why you are here is because we have a lot of questions regarding alchemy. Uh, right. The real alchemy, the real world alchemy. Because I think a lot of people, when they watch Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, they kind of have it in the back of their heads, like alchemy is a real thing that people actually researched in the real world, but they don't really know what that means, what alchemy right. is. They know Philosopher's Stone, they know Harry Potter, and <laughs> we're hoping to get uh, a little bit more of the context. I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about what you know about the history of uh, the Philosopher's Stone legend and how that kind of factors into history. Yeah, probably the place to start is to think about alchemy a little more broadly than, than the Philosopher's Stone, which is just sort of one of the most, I guess, well-known elements of alchemical pursuits. Right. Broadly speaking, alchemy, for historians anyways, re refers to a whole set of kind of related beliefs, texts, practices, figures that go back in you know, European history something like 2,000 years maybe a little earlier if you look at its origins. But basically, alchemy, as I understand it anyway, um, can, can be thought of as sort of two things. On the one hand, it's sort of a philosophy 
or, or a collection of philosophies. And on the other, it's a practice or a set of practices. And when you think of it today, I mean, as a historian, when you talk about alchemy, what you're really probably thinking about is, is the, the kind of alchemy that was pursued in, in early modern Europe, right? um, really maybe the late, late Middle Ages, um, early Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And during this, this is the period before, sort of immediately before the scientific revolution. And while many of the sort of ideas and practices that we now associate with modern sciences had origins during this period, um, they were by no means institutionalized. And the, the worldview was one that in many ways, people's understanding of nature in Western Europe during this period had a lot more in common with that of the ancient Greeks and Romans than it did with, um, you know, uh, Europeans even, say, one or 200 years later during the time of, like, Isaac Newton. So you got to think about alchemy first of all, in the context of, of one kind of way of understanding nature and humans' relationship to nature that arose during a period before what we now think of as modern science. That division between alchemy as a philosophy and alchemy as a proto-science or a pseudoscience, is that a division that historians today apply to it, or was that even a thing back then? No, uh, absolutely. History. <laughs> Those two questions are more closely related than you might think. I would say neither. So historians like to talk about what we call actors' categories. What that means is describing the past in terms that people in the past themselves would have used and understood. For this reason, when you're talking about, say, uh, experiments uh, looking for the Philosopher's Stone in Italy in the 15th century, it doesn't really make sense for historians anyway to sort of contrast them with science because nobody practiced anything that they called science at that time, or at least not in the way that we would now identify it with science. Your specific question about, well, you know, as a practice or as a philosophy, I think that most people who associated themselves with like alchemical pursuits during the Renaissance and the Middle Ages wouldn't have really drawn that distinction. I mean, they would have said alchemy is, is both a philosophy and it's a practice. You know, that's sort of true, I guess, of science more generally in a later period, too. And that's one of the things that historians have, have looked to as being significant about alchemy in the sort of history of the development of, of European thought. Interesting. Because one of the things that I've always found fascinating about alchemy is that even in its real-world version, it's still kind of a magic system in that it requires magical thought, right? Or magical thinking. It's this idea that you can create something to cure a disease, a universal solvent. Was it magical in the mind of the people who researched it? This is a really great example of a situation where that question's hard to answer because to them there was no such distinction. Right. You know, alchemy was widely practiced and widely believed in, let's say, through the 15th century at which point many of the texts upon which it was based were debunked by these Renaissance humanists who, who found that their true origins were not as ancient as they had once been believed. Hmm. So at that point, in the 15th century, practicing alchemists would not have distinguished science from magic because there, there was not yet a conception of science as we have now. Now, they did have the word magic, and they talked about it a lot. But people's impression of magic really varied enormously, um, and it could, it could mean many different things in many different contexts. It could even be good or bad, depending on. So let's think about maybe a little more concretely. What did alchemists believe, or what did they do, right? If you want to think of it both as a philosophy and a practice, right? What did they believe? What did they do? You gestured to probably the two sort of bodies of practices and beliefs that are, that are most closely associated with at least European alchemy, 
um, during this period. One of those is quest for the Philosopher's Stone, and the other one is the uh, effort to create an elixir of life. And sometimes these two things, for some alchemists, are the same, right? They think that well, maybe one certain substance can be interchangeably called one or both of those things. So it's a very, I mean, it's a very personal kind of pursuit, and that's part of the way that it's that it's always phrased. But essentially, that I think that broadly speaking, we can say that most alchemists had two kind of broad ambitions. One one was to transmute metals into gold, and the other one was to create some kind of concoction by which you could extend life. And so the question is, all right, is either of those two magical? Well, I mean, you know, in a certain sense, no. Today, you know, um, Peter Thiel wants to extend his life indefinitely too. But Peter Thiel doesn't say that he's like a magician. In fact, as I'm sure you guys know, like we literally have the capability of transforming most metals into gold. I mean, it, it requires nuclear fission, but um, it can be done. <laughs> and we don't call that magic either. So I mean, starting to sort of draw the distinction between alchemy as, you know, an occult science or alchemy as a magical practice, these distinctions make a lot more sense in a later period when our modern ideas of what constitute like non-occult science became a little bit more um, well thought out. Right. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I kind of picture an alchemist from like the 15th century might have certain things that they do that absolutely work. For sure. It's like they're not totally full of crap. Like people are like, well, you know, he's a smart guy, he's learned, he reads lots of books, he knows things. So what if 80% of everything he says and, and does is stuff I've never seen? You know, the 20% <laughs> that he's doing is pretty impressive, right? <laughs> you know? Historians today who are working on the history of alchemy are extremely interested in exactly that kind of thing. Like there's, um, there's a professor at uh, Columbia called Pamela Smith who has a project called the Making and Knowing Project. And this is a sort of a, an organization, a bunch of professors, graduate students, undergrads too, and they get in and they, they actually recreate some of these kinds of artisanal processes that were used by all kinds of different practitioners is the word they usually use from like five or 600 years ago. And um, in fact, things exactly like that, you know, making toothpaste or like finding enamels or uh, creating certain kinds of composites for mining and metallurgy, these kinds of processes that we now associate with more conventional chemistry were largely not divorced from what we might think of as the more specifically alchemical pursuits that I was just talking about during the 16th century. People who, who did one of these things often sort of did them all. And there's no question that a lot of what they did had genuine, like, you know, real world applications. You talked about the philosophy of alchemy or alchemy as a philosophy. And if there are kind of unifying principles behind that philosophy, at least in terms of early modern alchemists? That's a really interesting question. I think you, you ask 10 historians and you'll get 10 different answers. But to me, the fundamental sort of idea that underlies alchemy, and, and this is actually true of almost all of what we would now consider the occult sciences, so it includes also astrology um, in particular, is the idea of universal correspondence, that all of the sort of aspects, the sort of different facets of nature are related to each other in what you might consider to be hidden ways, esoteric ways, occult ways, literally hidden or dark. Don't see them, but they're there. In a certain way, um, this is a feature of really all European cosmology of all kinds before Galileo. It stems sort of naturally from like Aristotelian cosmology that has the world at the center, and then sort of different elements arranged in 
kind of concentric spheres surrounding the center of the earth, which is also the center of the universe. In, in Aristotle's world, Aristotle, ancient Greek philosopher, whose thought sort of broadly speaking really set the terms for European natural philosophy until the 16th century or so. Um, within that, that framework, you can, you can very easily start to understand how different aspects of the universe have some kind of resonance uh, with each other and potentially control over each other. So the philosophy that underlies really all alchemical practice believes that there are connections usually between the following three categories of things, metals or other sort of inorganic kind of matter that you find, what we now would call metals, the bodies of the heavens, astronomical bodies, you know, stars and planets, as well as I mean, things that we now call, you know, moons and, and the sun, and whatever else, but which were understood extremely differently in pre-modern times than they are now. And then finally, the human body, which has, you know, lots of different kind of components of it, different sort of organs, different parts of the body. And so the core idea of alchemy, in my view anyway, is that there are correspondence between specific parts of these different realms of, of the, the macrocosm, the universe, and, and the microcosm, which is the human body. And that by understanding the way that, that those sort of relations work, um, you can manipulate them and therefore produce effects in nature that are otherwise sort of unusual. I think that's the sort of justification that underlies a lot of alchemical practice. For example, like the, I guess, heavenly body, as they would call it, Venus, would be related to a certain bile or humor of the human body. Exactly. I mean, the, the most classic example, and I think the most interesting one, because it still has left its traces in the way we speak today, is Mercury. Mm -hmm. So Mercury, you know, is one of the planets. For Aristotle and for most pre-modern philosophers, um, the planets were, were living bodies. They had souls. Um, they were animate. Animate comes from the word anima, meaning soul. And the key feature of anything with a soul is that it can move. So the planets that can move on their own have souls. So they're up there. They're kind of alive and maybe even sentient. We, we don't really know. But they're still sort of connected through certain sorts of universal correspondence. So you've got Mercury, which is a planet, right? But Mercury is, is also a metal. You know, this sort of the stuff that's in your like um, analog thermometer, right? And mercury is also associated with a, a certain kind of temperament in people, being mercurial, right? Um, some, somebody who changes a lot. And all of these things, okay, mercury the planet, mercury the metal, and mercuriality as a personal trait, they have certain kind of features um, that they all share in common. Like for mercury, it's being quick to change, very uh, elastic, fluid, liquid. Mercury, the metal, flows around Mercury, the planet, because of the specificities of its sort of orbital patterns. And then Mercurial is like, you know, as a person, is if your temperament changes quickly or if you're sort of quick to anger or, or, or quick to humor or whatever. And so once you understand these sort of phenomena, you can start to look for the features in nature that will allow you to kind of manipulate the links between them and produce effects like, you know, making your personality less mercurial or changing a mercurial metal into a different kind of metal or potentially, um, you know, casting a horoscope, taking into effect the uh, effects that mercury has being in a particular position in the sky. 
this vibes with themes that are present in the show that we're watching. I was about to ask that. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about like all is one, one is all, right? Like we're talking about like themes with the where the body is related to the outside circumstances, and you know, I don't know. That's that's very very cool stuff. One of the most specific themes in the show is the relationship between alchemists and God and what God means to these people, which leads me to ask, was alchemy seen as sacrilegious? Because when you describe trying to understand this great connection between everything, you know, in my mind, and maybe this is just my writer drama mind going to action, but it seems to me like an attempt to see the world the way God would. No, absolutely it was. Um, there were many circumstances where people got into trouble with the religious authorities because of their alchemical practice. On the other hand, we, we have to remember that um, basically nobody in pre-modern Europe was you know, atheistic or non-religious in, in the way that we would think about it now. Um, it was simply not a, a feasible sort of way to exist in that culture. So uh, one good example is Tommaso Campanella, who, who was declared a heretic and burnt at stake and also a practicing alchemist who wrote some sort of like alchemical utopian texts in Renaissance Italy. And, you know, he was declared a heretic, um, but he himself thought that he was a very religious man. And most of the great alchemists, certainly the most famous ones, these men thought of themselves as deeply pious and very religious, but their interpretations of religion were often at odds with those of the church authorities in part for the reason that you suggest, because there was a perceived hubris of alchemical practice, but also because of, I mean, many more sort of technical kinds of problems. I mean, one is that, you know, alchemy, in most of its forms anyway, suggests that humans can have communication with other sorts of non-divine intelligences. And there you're getting real close to witchcraft or conjuring, which is something that John Dee in England got in big trouble for. So, Another sort of general feature that I think pretty much all early modern European alchemy has in common is a belief that the character, character in the sense of the state of an individual's own personal soul, has a great deal to do with the kind of knowledge that they're able to pursue and the kinds of um, things that they're going to create. So alchemy differs from early experimental science in this pretty fundamental way. that It's always believed, again, because of the sort of cosmology of correspondence, um, that in order to succeed in alchemical pursuits, your soul, yourself, you have to be a very special kind of person who's gone through a certain kind of training and a certain kind of spiritual preparation in order to be successful. But that's actually part of the process. A foundation of knowledge is power, to vastly oversimplify it. Mm-hmm. But I think that definitely connects to themes of the show we're watching, where basically you oh, have yes. to be a big nerd in order to fight in this universe, which... I connect with. But also interesting is that our heroes are very secular. Even though they're alchemists, they're very secular, whereas the villain, not so much, not so secular, (laughs) in my opinion. Speaking of the villain, I had a question, which is, so in the show, the state, in a way, has pretty much sort of monopolized alchemy. And was there, in real life, was the state, was the kingdom ever connected to alchemy like that did it ever State achieve sponsored a main- alchemy yeah did it ever achieve a mainstream or was it mostly yeah quote which fringe? is i'm just gonna pen to that question broaden it just a little bit if you could talk about just what kind of people were what we now call alchemists or who referred to themselves as alchemists yeah broadly speaking i think that you can say that there's a, a general sort of trajectory 
that covers more or less, let's say from like the 16th century through to the mid 16th century to the mid 17th century. So from, from the high Renaissance through to the middle of the scientific revolution, there's a kind of a general pattern where state support for alchemy, which absolutely existed, falls away. And in fact, kind of eventually turns into the opposite, explicit state condemnation for alchemy. So Queen Elizabeth was uh, the main patron of John Dee. He was a court astrologer. And alchemy was one of his open pursuits. He did it with her knowing. It was totally cool. Alchemy was never quite as important to European states as its sort of sister discipline, astrology, was. Um, and so throughout the 16th and, and really into the 17th century, you'll find pretty much most major astronomers, like, I mean, even major scientific revolution astronomers, astronomers people like Tuco Brahe and um, Johannes Kepler, casted horoscopes all the time, and often for their powerful court patrons. Um, this was totally normal practice for European courts, even while sometimes they themselves didn't believe in it. Like Kepler had all kinds of crazy mystical beliefs, but like normal kind of judicial astrology really wasn't one of them, and yet he still cast horoscopes for various sort of German princes um, as, as part of his day job. That was just something you were expected to do. By the sort of middle of the 17th century, um, the scientific establishment increasingly was suspicious of these kinds of practices, and sort of European um, states tended to go along with them. So which, which way the order of causality works, I think, is probably something that historians can debate. But, but I can tell you that one key point is the founding of the Royal Academy of Science um, in, in Paris under Louis XIV in the mid-17th century. This is one of the major research organizations of the early modern period in the most you know, powerful European state of the time. And when they established this organization, the Royal Academy of Science, um, it has very few rules because they want to encourage all kinds of different investigations. But really one of the few things that they say explicitly is, we're not going to do alchemy anymore. That's not a successful path. <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't to say that this was like, you know, evil or that the state needed to have its own control over it. Really, it was just that, well, at this point, we're, we're not making, it wasn't even, and they didn't even say that alchemy is totally fake or like that alchemy isn't going to work. It was simply like, well, we, this has not been a very successful avenue of pursuit. We don't really want to support it now. And things stayed that mm -hmm. way really until the 18th century. Very interesting. And when there was a bit of a, a comeback? Well, no, I mean, I, by, the 18, by the late 18th century, no, no, no reputable scientist, either publicly or privately, really believed in the <laughs> Philosopher's Stone. It had to be a part of the midnight or whatever. The, what is it? The, the morning dawn society or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like Aleister Crowley and the yeah the, yeah like all those people they probably nineteenth century stuff that. yeah D that's a different that's a totally different deal. I wanted to ask you, in the show there are examples of secret codes in alchemical texts and alchemical researchers who kind of disguise their research in ways that the layperson could not uh, understand it. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there are any uh, historical real-life analogs to that. That's 100% real. One of the key features of, of alchemy, and this again is sort of related to the idea of that the individual who's pursuing it matters, you know, unlike modern science where it doesn't or shouldn't. I mean, in theory, it doesn't. In practice, you know, historians believe it does. There was for sure a culture of secrecy surrounding alchemical practice throughout the early modern period. And, you know, you could explain that in a lot of ways. 
Um, one of them is that, again, alchemy, as you mentioned earlier, kind of was, was always related to these very practical tradecraft and artisanal sorts of, of endeavors where, well, you know, an alchemist, somebody dabbles in alchemy might also be creating that toothpaste, right? And they don't want other people to know their toothpaste. Yes. So there's good reasons <laughs> to keep your alchemical practice secret. The other one is because part of the sort of whole kind of ideology of it, the philosophy aspect is that this is the kind of practice that's potentially extremely powerful and you don't want people who are not, um, you know, equipped to wield that power to be able to. So you want to cast it and sort of all these sorts of secrets. That's absolutely a real feature of alchemical practice all the way through the 18th century. I mean, the other thing too is that it's dangerous. I mean, it's actually dangerous for you sometimes if your practice is discovered by church or state authorities, and so you don't want to publicize them. Like, that's why we didn't know that Newton was so into this stuff, was because Newton didn't go around talking all the time about the green dragon devouring <laughs> the sun. Like, that was in his <laughs> private manuscripts. that was not published in Principia Mathematica. One final question, uh, which is a fun one, and that's, Alex, if you have a favorite alchemical figure and or any fun alchemical anecdotes about them. Here's what I can say. I think any English language speaker who's interested in learning about historical alchemy can begin with John Dee. Super fascinating. I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis about that guy like a bajillion years ago. His books are in English. They're widely published. You can find them on like early English books online or, or on Google Books probably now. The, he's the classic. He's the classic early modern English alchemist. Okay, here's, yeah, this is probably a cool fact in a way. But when I started graduate school, I was working primarily on, on occult science in 16th century England. And I had written this undergraduate thesis on John Dee. And I told my advisor at Stanford about this. And she's like, oh, you know, you do know about the curse of John Dee. And I was like, no. And she said, yeah, everyone who's ever published a book on John Dee has had enormous trouble with it, like gotten into all kinds of problems. Sometimes their books don't come out in forever. Sometimes like they're denied tenure. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. So you got to be careful about publishing on John Dee. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like the wow. historians of science know about this curse. I mean, it turned out I, I was never at risk of incurring the wrath of, I guess, John Dee's ghost or whatever it was. But what I discovered that was sort of a, a, the complement to this is that um, it was just shocking to me as I, you know, spent most of the next decade um, talking to people who worked on like early modern history of science, an unbelievable number of extremely successful historians who work on all kinds of topics from, you know, like Chinese medicine to textual, uh, like, uh, recreations of, of ancient Rome. An incredible number of them began their historical work by researching John Dee. And then at some point in graduate school, they're like, man, there's just too much of this stuff. Like, I got to do something else instead. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of a, both the, the, the curse of John Dee was already known to professional historians when I started graduate school. But I feel like in the last 10 years, I discovered the blessing of John Dee, which is to dip into it a little bit and then get out before it's too late. And if you don't want to get cursed by John Dee, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FM Analysts. That's FM, the word analysts on Twitter. Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. We love to see those. Alex, I'd like to thank you so much for coming. Do you have anywhere we can follow you? Or just anything you want to plug? Or I know you're working on a book, I think. My pleasure. Yeah, look out for my book coming out from University of Chicago Press sometime in the next year or two. A Global Enlightenment, Western Progress and Chinese Science. 
or you can read some of my articles. You can see it all from my faculty website profile at University of Wisconsin-Madison Humanity Center. Well, we will let you go. Thank you so yes. much. Yes, thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you for giving me an A-. minus. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like to pretend that the dog in his in his background is has an arm tied to it. What about you guys? <laughs> I like to imagine that he's about to transmute his daughter with that no 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 no. we like to thank sarah learning for managing at tumblr <laughs> if you want to check that out go to full metal-analyst.tumblr.com do be warned there will be spoilers there Alex that'll be up for now we'll see you next time on full metal analyst until what then stay frosty bye everyone bye bye what have you done <laughs> alex